Okay, so we are with Eric Krimmel, who wrote a book about uh, his tour. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? Good. And um, I have some questions for you that I pulled, I put on my list of questions here. So, um, so, Eric, when was this tour? Um, we finished up the tour a couple years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, it took me a little while to, you know, get all my notes together and everything. I had actually turned it into a, an article um, at first, and I kind of shopped it around, and nobody was that interested in it because I think it was too long. And uh, then when I realized I could self-publish it, I started working on it uh, from scratch and, um, you know, uh, finished it up just about uh, a month ago. And it's been up uh, about uh, two weeks now. Two weeks since the book's been out? Yeah. And so it's on Amazon? It's on iTunes? Yeah, it's or? a digital book. There's, there's an imprint version. It's on, uh, you can get it for the iPad on the iTunes store or iBook store. You can get it uh, for Amazon's Kindle and Fire from Amazon.com and for Barnes and Noble's Nook through the Barnes and Noble website. Okay. And I was able to get a good chunk of it for a sample through Amazon, which yeah, was good. Yeah, I think Amazon uh, gives you about a 20-page preview or so. Yeah. And um, that was good. So I read it last night. And so you have these two friends, and you guys live in Michigan. Right, in the Detroit area. And you guys went on this tour, and you want to just tell, them, tell me about it? Sure. Um, you know, we're, we're old friends. We've done a lot of biking together. We're just recreational cyclists. We don't, you know, compete or anything. Uh, but we've done a number of rides. We've done charity rides and, you know, things like that. And uh, we thought we'd like to try some touring. Well, we looked into a lot of different options and um, and thought that maybe a cross-country bike tour, uh, you know, we might be able to do something like that. Well, the first challenge uh, that we faced was that we didn't have the two to three months needed to, you know, we couldn't take that much time off. So we broke the trip into four segments, and uh, we did two to three weeks uh, every year for four years. So we started out on the, the East Coast and worked in Bar Harbor, Maine, and worked our way back to the Detroit area. And then the next segment took us from um, Anacortes, which is a little north of Seattle, on the coast in Washington, uh, all the way to Glacier National Park in Montana. And then the third segment, uh, we rode across the plains, uh, Montana and North Dakota, to the Minnesota border. And then the last segment took us through Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and then back down to the Detroit area. What, wait, okay, so wait, you went from, could you say those last points again? You went from? Oh, the last segment was yeah. uh, through Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and then back down to the Detroit area. And so you started with a, with a group called the Flatlanders? Is that it? Um, the name of the book is The Cross-Country Adventures of the Blue Highway Cycling Elite, and the name came about because, the name of our group came about because we were about a week into the trip, and um, because this was our first touring trip, you know, of course, we were adjusting to bike touring. We had never toured with weight on our, you know, we had never done any kind of riding with weight on our bikes. We had never, um, you know, we're from Michigan, so it's an incredibly flat state, and we weren't used to climbing all these hills that we experienced out east, and 
we covered less miles than we thought we were going to cover in a day. And the first few days were extremely hot, and we were kind of wilting under the sun. And so about a week into the trip, you know, one of the guys, Gary, says, you know, we, we need a name for our trip, our group. We need, you know. And so Mark and I started suggesting names that were similar to bike clubs and organizations that we were aware of. And Gary said, no, it's got to be something like the elite. Well, that was a joke because there's nothing elite about our group. And so we just we started laughing really hard and nearly lost control of the bikes. And when we stopped laughing, Mark said, you know, it'd be more appropriate to call us the Three Stooges of Bike Touring, you know, based on how things have gone so far, you know, all the mistakes we've made. So it just kind of stuck. It's kind of uh, there's a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration in the name. It's kind of a joke, you know. There's there's really nothing elite about um, our group. Uh, well, what do you guys all do for a living? Um, I'm a photographer and a designer. Um, the other two guys are automotive engineers. Uh, they work uh, for one of the the big three auto companies, and they work in the emissions uh, uh, department where. They work on things to try and make cars uh, cleaner. Hmm. So did they know, were they able to use their skill, their mechanical skills on the bikes at all? I'm um, sorry? W would you guys know how to maintain your bikes and repair them on the road, or did you have oh, to? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we all had new bikes, so um, we had some minor problems. I broke a spoke along the way, but we were able to fix that uh, until we hobbled into a, a bike shop, and then, you know, we were, you know, get the, the rim and everything trued up and fine-tuned. And then um, Gary had a problem with his bottom bracket, uh, but again, we were able to just, you know, bike into a, uh, a bike shop and get that fixed. And um, you know, we had some some minor mechanical difficulties, but uh, they really didn't turn out to be uh, any kind of major issue. So um, you you experienced a moment when you started where you realized the reality as compared with what you had imagined. And at that moment, you almost, I guess you considered turning back? Is that possible? Is that, would you say that's accurate? Or it wasn't that much of a crisis for you? Um, when we had mechanical difficulties? No, no, no. When you first started and you realized, well, this is more weight than you've carried before and it's hotter and mm -hmm. you were, you know, it, it wasn't like, it, it was harder than you expected. You weren't making as much time as you thought you were. Right. And so did you have a moment where you thought, you know, well, let's just forget about it? Well, I think that um, there were definitely moments, especially in the very beginning when, you know, you're adjusting to, to all these new things that you're not used to, where you're thinking, you know, what did we really get into here? You know, it's, it, it, there is a, a moment of doubt. But right. um, I think once we, we got to the point where, you know, we knew we were kind of adjusting, the, the temperature cooled off a little bit, and we just felt like, you know, we were on this adventure, so if we can get up in the morning and we could just ride towards our destination and, you know, cover some miles, even if we're not covering as many miles or even if it's more difficult, um, you know, things will be okay. And um, after a couple of days, we started adjusting to the weight on the bikes, and, you know, we became better at climbing hills and stuff like that. And like I say, it cooled down a little bit. So, um, yeah, and then after that point, it's like, you know, this is okay. We can do this. You know, mm -hmm. we can we can get up in the morning. We can get on the bikes, and we can cover as many miles as we can cover. So, mm -hmm. we're just going to keep going on. And then by the time the first segment was over, we were all excited, you know, to uh, you know do the rest of it. So, what do you learn about people when you're traveling with them? What did you learn about these two guys? And 
Were there moments where, you know, your friendship was tested, or was it all smooth? Um, well, I had known him for quite a long time, so we had spent a lot of time together. But, you know, and it's always great just to be able to hang out with your friends, um, you know, just uh, for long periods of time. You know, there's a lot of joking and laughing between us. You know, of course, we're always taunting each other and poking fun at each other. And, um, you know, I, I just realized a lot of the things that I, you know, or reinforced a lot of things that I had already known about them, that, you know, they're great guys, that they're, you know, really dependable and reliable. When things are tough, you know, nobody whines or complains. You know, you just suck it up and, you know, you do the best that you can. And, um, you know, in situations like that, it just, uh, you know, makes the, the trip a lot more enjoyable. You know, we had some minor arguments about some issues. Uh, Gary, towards the end of the day, Gary oftentimes wanted to try and cover more miles and, and ride into the night. And, you know, I was, you know, more conservative saying, no, I think, you know, that's really dangerous to ride at night, especially on these back roads where there's no street lights. And, you know, we didn't have headlights for the bike either. So there were, you know, some minor disagreements uh, along the way about things like that. Um, but overall, you know, everything went pretty smooth. Mm -hmm. So what, what was it like camping? Did you, you just primarily camped or did you stay at yes, hotels? Yes, the, the, the route that we were on is uh, there's an organization called the Adventure Cycling Organization. And right. they put out these maps that um, uh, are routes, uh, uh, you know, uh, long-distance routes. And if you put a couple of the routes together, you can, you know, uh, bike, or, you know, find a route across the country. We had to go off-route a little bit so we could come back uh, through Michigan where, you know, we live. But um, for the most part, these maps uh, route you on back roads and, you know, show you where campsites are and, you know, restaurants and bike shops and things like that. So it was really a good resource. And, um, yeah, we had planned to camp out every night, so we would just, you know, look at the map and see how far the next campsite was. And, um there were a couple of times, uh, you know, for example, one time it rained all day and we were all wet and our gear was wet. So we got uh, found a little, you know, cabin. Um, and there were there were a few times. Mostly, um, mostly it was just like if it was raining all day long and everything was drenched and we just didn't really relish the idea of setting up, you know, trying to set up in the rain, and you know, and every, you know, and also, you know, our gear was all wet too. Uh, so there were a couple of times we. We stayed in like a hotel or you know a small cabin or something like that, but for the most part, we camped out. Are you a an everyday commuter by bike, or do you do you do it recreationally mostly? Yeah, no, I don't commute. I um, I work you know just out of my house, uh, so um, I I don't have the opportunity to commute. But um, Mark does commute a lot, and um, and yeah, we just we ride recreationally. Um, you know, get together on the weekends and stuff. So, what was your favorite part of the tour? Um, it's really hard to say. There's a lot of great parts. Uh, you know, coming through the Cascades in Washington. You know, the the scenery is just spectacular. But then, you know, so so is the scenery when you're coming over the Rockies in Glacier National Park. There, um, being on the plains and you know uh, just experiencing you know that vastness where, you know, you can look out into the horizon. It's, you know, like being uh, being in the middle of the ocean. You know, it's in Michigan, it's really lush. So, you know, I don't get those sweeping, you know, I get to, don't get to experience those sweeping landscapes like that. And, um, you know, coming through, you know, the Great Lakes region, through the Upper Peninsula, you know, it's a place I've been often, I really love it. You know, the thick 
lush forests and small lakes and stuff, riding along Lake Michigan, you know, and the endless sandy beaches, you know, that was really a great experience. And, you know, coming over the green and the white mountains in uh, Vermont and New Hampshire, you know, that was pretty amazing too. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, there are just a lot of great experiences. It's kind of hard to, to point to just one. And did you meet people along the way? What's that? And, and about the people you met along the way? Yeah, there were some a lot of interesting people. You know, it's it's funny because um, when you've got all the gear on your bike and stuff, it tends tends to you know uh, pique a person's uh, curiosity and interest. So people would come over to us when we were stopped and ask us where we were going, and you know we'd talk about you know this big tour that we're on to you know uh, you know across the country. And it's funny, a lot of people either responded one of two ways, either. You know, they, they kind of thought we were a little crazy for trying something like that, but they wouldn't actually say that. They would just kind of look at us and say something like, well, that's some adventure or something like that with a, you know, roll their eyes or something. Or um, they would ask us, you know, uh, how we could sit on the bike seat that long, you know, mm -hmm. implying that we must have like buns of steel or something, you know, because, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, endure something like that. So um, that was probably the, the you know, the, the most common, you know, kind of feedback that we got. But a lot of people were just, you know, interested in the trip and, you know, uh, just, you know, really friendly. And, we, you know, we met, you know, just a lot of great people along the way. So people are acting like uh, it must be hard. And it is hard, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they act like, yeah, they acted like, um, you know, this was some monumental feat. And, um, yeah, I guess when you, you add it all up, we biked uh, approximately 4,250 miles, I wow. think, was the total distance over a period of about two and a half months. I mean, the, the trip in that context is, you know, quite an accomplishment, but every day, you know, you're waking up and you're getting on the bike and you're just riding. And, and so, you know, you, you just add all those little experiences together and then, you know, you get from one coast to the next. Mm -hmm. And, but, so what were some of the things that came up, like other problems, like what, what parts of your body started to fail? Well, <laughs> um, you know, there is a common problem that a lot of bikers have in that they get sore wrists or their, their fingers get numb if they spend a lot of time on the bike just from leaning forward. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that tends to be an issue. Uh, one of the things that I did to try and avoid that was I modified my handlebars, so I've got a straight bar with the drop handlebars, and then I also put an arrow bar on my uh, bike, which was not, you know, for speed or anything. It was just for comfort, just so I could rotate and uh, my positions from, like, the drop handlebar to the straight bar and then get the weight off my wrists, and, you know, by using the arrow bar. And that really helped out a lot. Um, I didn't have too many problems. Mark and Gary had some problems. Gary had uh, strained his Achilles heel at one point when we were on the West Coast, and that was really bothering him. And that lasted for a couple of days. Uh, he actually, at that point, was thinking about leaving the tour, but, um, you know, it got better um, over a period of time, and then he was fine. Um, sore knees sometimes uh, can be an issue. Uh, Gary had a little bit of a problem with, with one of his knees. Um, mm -hmm. But aside from that, um, you know, we weren't, you know, trying to race across the country. We were, you know, uh, you know, taking a lot of breaks and stuff. So, um, you know, it was just, uh, you know, just essentially adapting to carrying the extra weight and stuff. And, and you know, once your body gets used to it, uh, there, we really didn't have that many problems. And what did you learn about equipment? 
what to bring, what well, not to bring. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, we had not toured before, so on the East Coast, um, I had been backpacking and have done a lot of things like that. So I was, I paired my load like to the basic minimum. Gary and Mark took a different approach, and they kind of threw a bunch of extra stuff in, you know, kind of under the "it's better to be safe than sorry" theory. Mm-hmm. So, um, who was right? Yeah. So. Um, no, I mean, I mean, which one of you was right? Well, um, both of you, I'm sure. Actually. About a week into the trip, Gary found a box, and he, he said, I just got to get rid of some of the stuff, and he threw a bunch of stuff in the box, and Mark threw some in the box, and he, you know, and they mailed it home. I was thinking at that point that I probably would have added a few more things. Right. So, um, you know, I think it, when it comes to gear, you know, you just have to go out and try it. You can read the books. You can, you know, uh, get the expert advice, but you just got to, you know, see what works for you. And, you know, that just takes a little bit of experience. So after that, after the first segment, after the, we, we had biked, you know, from the East Coast back to the Detroit area, we, we kind of knew what kind of tour we were doing. We knew how, mm-hmm. how far we were going to go. We knew a lot of different things about um, the kind of gear that we would need. And, um, you know, and then you just you carry the kind of stuff that, that fits your tour and fits your riding style. Mm-hmm. So it's personal. Yeah, it's pretty personal. For example, there are some people who like to go really lightweight. So they'll sleep on the ground with just a lightweight plastic tarp. Well, if that works for you, that's fine. Um, and if, if it works in the area you're tour- touring, then that's great. But, you know, if you're in an area where you're being bombarded by mosquitoes, you know, after a couple of nights of that, you're thinking, no, I don't want a plastic tarp. I'm going to carry a tent, you know. Mm-hmm. So... There are little things like that, you know, in terms of what kind of clothing you're going to wear and, you know, what, what kind of jackets, um, you know, uh, and, and other gear. Um, you know, when we, uh, the first part of the Great Lakes segment, when we were on, in Minnesota, it was very cold. And, you know, I was kind of, you know, wishing that I had a down jacket. Um, fortunately, it, it didn't stay cold for very long, but I ended up piling on, like, my fleece and, you know, my my Gore-Tex jacket over that. I put socks on my hands. I had this little headband that I put on. I flipped up the hood, you know, and I was thinking I should, you know, I should have brought a, a warmer jacket. But it was fine as long as we were riding. And then, um, mm-hmm. you know, when we uh, took a break, we just, you know, try and duck in a restaurant or something to warm up. And it only lasted, a, you know, the really cold weather only lasted a couple of days. So I was glad I didn't bring something that I probably was would only have used maybe a day or two so you make a point about not recommending rest certain restaurants or uh, businesses well I you know when I wrote the book um, you know because uh, I didn't because it'd been a few years after we had uh, you know finished the trip um, I didn't want to write a guidebook you know this is where we stopped this is you know this is a great meal here you know this is a place you know we recommend um, because restaurants can change you know overnight you know they could be bought by somebody new they could you know have a menu change or the quality of service can can change um, some of the campgrounds that we stayed at you know they might not be there anymore it's so I didn't want to specifically talk about you know uh, you know I didn't want to write a guidebook and specifically talk about the places that we stayed at rather I just wanted to kind of give an idea about what kind of experience this was and and um, you know what it was like to actually do a trip like this. Mm-hmm. Can you? Um, well, 
Can you talk about the bikes that you had? What what kind of bike you had? You had a hybrid. Um, I used a hybrid that I uh, modified slightly. It was uh, similar geometry and wheel size and everything to uh, the touring bikes. Um, Mark bought a used bike, but it it was practically in brand new condition. He used a Trek, and um, Gary bought um, a Bruce Gordon, which is a small company and. Um, he was really busy with work and stuff, and he didn't want to shop around or anything, so um, he was able to buy the bike, the racks, and the bags, you know, like all as one package. And for him, that just worked out because he didn't have a lot of time um, to shop around and stuff. I shopped around a bit. Mark, you know, uh, he looked through the want ads first, figuring that if he couldn't find it, something, then, you know, he would go out and buy one, buy a new bike. But um, he actually bought a used bike. Uh, that already had the racks on it, so uh, that worked out for him. When you say hybrid, it's a touring bike crossed with a, what, road bike? Just what does that mean? Well, it's just like a basic, yeah, it's a hybrid. It's a, kind of like a, a cross between like a road bike and a mountain bike, uh, more like a street bike. Um, but it had a, a frame geometry and uh, the size of the wheels. Uh, they're um, 700 by 38s. They were the same as the touring bikes. Um, uh, so it was very similar to the touring bike. Uh, it's just that the hybrid came, instead of with the drop handlebars, it came with the straight bar. And so, you know, modifying it to what I wanted to do, you know, having a straight bar and a drop bar and an arrow bar and all that, it was just a little easier to modify it. So um, mm-hmm. that's why I picked that bike. Okay. So, and how, so how is it like biking in Detroit, in the Detroit area? Um, well, um, I'm just south of Detroit, so uh, in the area where I'm at, there's some trails, uh, you know, um, and we got metro parks, and uh, there are trails around. Actually, biking in the city um, can be interesting. I mean, there's, there's, I know people who bike in the city all the time, um, and of course, we're right on the Detroit River, so, you know, there's some, you know, real nice scenic, uh, you know, routes that you can take, and then Michigan in general also um, is one of the leading states in rail-to-trail conversions, you know, taking old railroad lines and converting them into trails. So mm. throughout Michigan, there's a lot of rail trails, so there there are a lot of opportunities to bike here in, in the state. Okay, so now what do you hope for for your book? Because you've been trying to put stuff out there. You have this, like, something's calling you to put your writing about biking out there. And so what do you expect from putting this book out there? Do you think it'll be... Has, have you already heard back? Are there sales? Um, yeah, you know, um, you can track your sales uh, through, you know, the various uh, websites, the iBookstore, Amazon, or, or Barnes & Noble, and um, there have been some sales. I've uh, put out some press releases, and, um, you know, I've gotten a little bit of publicity for the book, and um, and so, yeah, I'm just kind of, you know, seeing how it goes, and uh if uh, there's enough interest, then um, you know I would most likely uh, want a, a print version of the book also. But uh, you know we'll see how it goes for now. Okay. And the title of the book is the Blue Elite. I'm sorry. What is it? It's the Cross Country Adventures of the Blue Cycling of the Blue Highway Cycling Elite. Cross Country Adventures of the Blue Highway Cycling Elite. Is there an acronym or anything? Um, no, but there should be. <laughs> um, it's a, it's actually a really cool title. Um, 
So I and I I wish you a lot of luck with that. And, okay. And thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much, Eric. Have a good day. You too. Okay. Bye. Okay, that was Eric Kummel, and you heard the title of his book. It's available online, Amazon, and I guess iTunes and whatnot. So check it out. Support bike authors. I think that it's really great to have to that we live in a world where you can put your stuff out by yourself, and um, it's only six bucks, between six and seven. All right. Um. So, how about we play a little song here um, while I try to load up the next thing which is an interview with somebody named Brian Wilson not of the Beach Boys but he was an activist who uh, tried to block a munitions train with other activists and this was back in the 80s when the munitions were going to you know to blow up people in Iraq and he and the other activists blocked the train tracks with their bodies. And, and the, ch- the, the company, the trains, knew that they were there. They'd been there for a few days. But um, instead of slowing down, the train actually sped up and ran him over. Should have killed him. It was miraculous that he lived. You know, fractured his uh, uh, skull and um, cut off his legs. So now he's in his 70s, and he's got fake legs, and he rides a hand cycle. So... <laughs> Uh, this is going to be an interview that we did with him. And uh, wait, why don't I just play that? Oh, because it's going to take a minute. So I'm going to play this other song. It's by Shonen Knife and the people from Bike SGV who came the other week, turned me on to this. And so why not uh, play it is my philosophy. If that can be a philosophy. Yeah. Why not? So it's called Shona, it's by Shona Knife called Cycling is Fun and it's available on YouTube. And it's loading. I'm not too optimistic about our internet connection, to be honest. But you can call in at 213-252-0998. This is Nick. This is Bike Talk. We're here at Kill Radio. This will be podcast on KPFK. Maybe not all of it. Maybe not this part. But call in. Oh, here we go. Let me pause it while it loads so you can have the uninterrupted experience. And we are on Facebook at Bike Talk. We are on Twitter at Bike underscore Talk underscore KPFK. Are we going to listen to Cycling is Fun? Are we going to try?
talking to Brian Wilson, and he's a cyclist. And a hand cycle. Yeah, now, now, can you explain that? Yeah, I ride a hand cycle, which is a three-wheeled, recumbent, arm-powered cycle where I'm sitting. Like on a recumbent bike, only I'm pedaling, I'm powering myself with my arms rather than my legs. Um, in a complete um, synchronized circular motion, unlike a leg bicycle where you're alternating. And uh, that's because um, it's synchronized because if it was alternating, my power wheel is on the front, which is also my steering wheel, and on an upper stroke on one side, which slightly pushed the wheel to the right, and on the and if I on the upper stroke on the right it would slightly push the wheel to the left, so you get a wobble, and you really lose efficiency. So it, so most hand cyclists are synchronized. So it's just uh, of course this is radio, right? So you can see this uh, can see the motion. My legs are in leg rest on each side of the front wheel, and so the chain ring is about uh, 15 inches from my chest. And then off on either side of the chain ring, I have bullhorn cranks, so they're kind of like, uh, you know, they're not straight out, but they're kind of curved like bullhorn, and I just, I get my whole torso into it, and uh, it's, um, I mean, I only run into uh, maybe three or four hand cyclists in Portland, I don't know how many there really are, but I never see more than three or four. Um, but uh, Portland's such a good cycling city that you know I'm out on the streets all the time, and um, and we do have a, an Oregon hand cycling alliance that gets together once in a while for group cycling. But for the most part, I'm usually cycling by myself. I mean, I'm cycling on the streets with lots of bicyclists, and they go faster than I go fast. I can go, so I can average maybe. 10 to 12 miles an hour. And how far do you go? Well, a lot of times I'm just doing errands or I'm going, to, I'm going, um, I go to, I go out to dinner in my hand cycle, but uh, I haven't never gone more than, a, on a trip, I've never gone more than a thousand miles, you know, for, uh, you know, kind of on a one, one, uh, you know, long trip where I'm going from A to Z it's a thousand miles or 500 miles and round trip is a thousand miles but generally in a, in a week I go 80 to 100 miles just around Portland and that's errands going to meetings visiting people uh, going downtown to dinner um, just taking a ride on uh, one of the trails around Portland just to get my exercise in uh, so it's uh, you know it's it's just it's it's my ex it's my primary exercise and it's my primary local mode of travel supplemented by bus and I got rid of my car and my driver's license as a protest against king car culture and I used to have a Corvette I used to drive all over in my Corvette. And so I graduated from a Corvette to a Volkswagen Beetle and from a Volkswagen Beetle to a hand cycle. <laughs> it is a recumbent, but a hand cycle is always almost is always a recumbent. 
you just say hand cycle? Can you take that on the bus? Yes. You must have been. I cannot take it on the bus. Does it have a way to? Uh, and, you know, the buses in Portland have the bike rack on the front, but it's only for a two-wheel. And I so far haven't been able to get it on Amtrak. Uh, well, they want it boxed. And when I box it, it's more than 50 pounds, which is, exceeds their uh, package limit, their baggage limit. And so I now have, I now changed the frame so I can actually take it apart in two pieces. But it requires two boxes, and I just haven't wanted to do that yet. So, um, so I'm still working on the idea of you know, getting my hand cycle on Amtrak. I really want to, I mean, I, I do long-distance travel on Amtrak. I do like it, and I'd like to be able to get off the train and use my hand cycle. Um, I haven't figured that out yet. And Amtrak hasn't figured it out either. I mean, they they know there's an issue here for uh, people that like have bigger wheelchairs. They they allow a wheelchair as long as it's only 42 inches long. And my hand cycle is 70 inches long. Now I can get into two pieces, but not on wheels. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, it's not functional. I have to have it in bo two boxes. And um, I haven't figured that out yet. I, I, I don't know. Well, maybe somebody who hears this can figure it out. Well, I've been hoping to, hoping to get a bicycle builder who will build a, a foldable hand cycle and get it below, uh, below 42 inches. Uh, you know, when it's... Pardon me? Yeah, carbon's really light, but carbon is not carbon fiber is not very sustainable as a as a material. So I'm back to steel and uh, basically. Uh, thank you very much. My Zapatista T-shirts. Yes. And they've got three in here, and then this is. You know, what is like about biking along the lines of how. You're yeah, very actively engaged in your immediate you, surroundings. Sure Did you want to make Well, uh, yeah, part of my... Um, all my uh, studies over the years, studying anthropology, evolutionary biology, psychology, I've been interested in the human condition. And I really understand now that going slow is really important going slower than faster because in the development of character, personality, mental acuteness, uh, you need to be engaged in the journey. It's like you need to be sharp. You need to be alert. And in a car, you can just kind of almost zone out and you're not at part you're not part of the journey you just part you just want to des get to your destination and that's not the way life is life is a journey at least for me life is really important as a journey so cycling going at 10 miles an hour i'm really engaged in the process of the journey i'm actually participating in every foot of my motion and uh, i'm not burning fossil fuels I mean, I, I, I have to eat. It provides the energy for... And, and so now I'm, a lot of my food is so local and organic, it's not even using much fossil fuel, the food that I eat. So, I mean, it's, it makes me become more conscious...
Oh, that was a... That's too bad it cut off there. Here, I'm going to start... I had to break this up into two parts because that's how my iPhone records. So this, you might hear a little bit of the same that we just heard in the second part. And so now I'm... A lot of my food is so local and organic, it's not even using much fossil fuel, the food that I eat. So, I mean, it's, it makes me become more conscious of the whole journey of life and all the inputs that are required. Uh, in fact, I do have a carbon fiber hand cycle, which isn't ergonomically designed very well, even though I designed it. I screwed up. Yeah, it's a prototype, but I really just use my steel hand cycle. And, and as I study embedded energy in materials, I know carbon fiber is not sustainable at all. And steel is much more sustainable because at least it's from iron. And the earth is kind of a ball of iron ore, I mean, you know, primarily. And so uh, slow, and I, I have a model that says slow and small are beautiful. Smaller units, small technology, a slower pace. Uh, it enables me to be more um, awake. I don't know. It's just uh, it's somewhat Buddhist too, and I'm not a Buddhist, but I study Buddhism, and um, just the notion of being really conscious. And so it means everything you do is is conscious. And so cycling to me is, first of all, it's a very, a wheel is like about 5,500 years old, probably the most interesting invention in the Neolithic period. But it took until about 1900 to develop, a, uh, you know, a bicycle, 1870 maybe, 1900. And to me, a bicycle is one of the most appropriate pieces of technology. It's relatively small, it's relatively simple. Uh, it's really accessible because it's not really hugely expensive, and anybody can, almost anybody can repair them. Um, so it's uh, it's a it's a piece of technology that's to me kind of revolutionary. It is extremely functional. Uh, it's very efficient in terms of moving small amount of weight. And I don't know if you know uh, Ivan Illich. The the um, the philosopher Ivan Illich dead now. He wrote a he wrote an essay in 1974 called Energy and Equity. He describes bicycling as the most efficient way of moving your weight. And I have a now getting a bamboo trailer for my hand cycle, so I'll be able to carry 200 pounds on my hand cycle with very little weight. I mean, very little weight to the trailer. And um, it's a much more efficient than using even cars. Now we have a, a group in Portland that all have these uh, cargo trailers, and uh, they're now moving on. They have a moving company in Portland of just bicycles. And lots, and I, and I have, like we have, a, I have a bicycle plumber, I have a bicycle electrician now. They do all the, I have a bicycle handyman. Uh, I have a bicycle contractor, and in Portland, it's it's real. You know, this stuff is is well, it's just exploding because it's a bicycling city, and and the cyclists, the bicyclists are generally are just much more aware. Because, you know, it's a it's a kind of a statement, and. Um, 
And they have, you know, we have uh, swarms now. We have bicycle swarms that kind of came out of Occupy. Mm -hmm. And um, it kind of re replaced uh, uh, critical mass uh, in Portland. So whenever the police are going to be doing something, a swarm, the swarm's going to go make sure they're between the police and the demonstrators. And the police have been arresting the swarmers now, so now the swarmers are going breaking down into smaller groups of three each, and they might have 30 of them, or three each, moving around. And uh, so it's just, it's like guerrilla. You have to be guerrillas, <laughs> living in a repressive police state. <laughs> so these are mini swarms now. <laughs> um, but, but you know, the Portland police are as brutal as any place else. So, you know, we all know it's a police state. And they're just trying to um, stay guerrilla-like, you know, staying um, active and uh, avoiding arrests, needless arrests. And um, I'm very involved in the Occupy Elder Caucus in Portland, and we're the most radical part of the Occupy in Portland now are the elders. Which is kind of interesting, <laughs> uh, and every actually uh, Occupy movement in general is going through quite a evolution. And, and, uh, but there's another strong group that are that are helping people stay in their foreclosed homes, and they've had some pretty big confrontations now with the sheriff, who has forcing the eviction orders. And but so we've had. There's about a hundred people that go in tent, uh, set up tents in the around the house, and it stalls the police usually for a couple of weeks because they don't want to do mass arrests around you know one woman being forced out of her house or a mother and a child. And um, so I don't know. It's uh, most of the occupied people in Portland are on bicycles. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a really Occupy, I'm a real fan of Occupy, and um, I don't know where it's going, but I want the system to collapse. So I also want at the same time to be building something, an alternative way of living. And, uh, but I can't stand the culture, actually, the, the overall culture, this culture. I can't stand it. Ameri the American, what we call the American culture. Uh, you know, money culture, the, the pretend culture, bullshit culture. It's, uh, it's destructive to minds, bodies, souls, spirits, the earth. Uh, and uh, the fact that we have a president that takes pride in selecting people every Tuesday to assassinate with drones. I mean, and it'll be the same with Romney. So uh, it's like that, to me, is so evil. Uh, that's why I haven't been boycotting elections since 76, but I mean, you know, it's just, uh, I, I wish people would just not vote. To say, look, we're not legitimizing something that's totally illegitimate, the American system. It's totally illegitimate. It doesn't matter who's elected. Anyway, that has nothing to do with cycling. <laughs> Oh, Portland are very radical. I, I just love it. They probably are here too. What is They know it's all bullshit. <laughs> well, that was Brian Wilson, and he is the activist who, while blocking a munitions train that was uh, bringing weapons to kill people in Iraq back in the 80s, he and other activists. 
uh, blocked the tracks and he was run over by a train, even though the train knew he was there. And uh, now he's hand cycling in Portland. And you can read his memoir, Blood on the Tracks. Um, he's he did a whole he did an hour on democracy now, so you can look up his episode on democracy now. And so this show, wa- this show is uh, Brian Wilson and also Eric Kimmel. did a book sorry for the pause Eric Kimmel he did a book called oh I wish I hadn't started saying what the book was called because the title is so long that I have to look it up now it is I'm looking at the sample I got from Kindle which is a big sample and um, and really nice that you can get this much of it the cross-country adventures of the Blue Highways cycling elite. And this is an interview with Eric Kimmel as well. So we had a great show, I feel. Uh, nobody else but me in the studio today, but I am thankful for the greatness of the show. And you can contact us on Facebook and have a great day. Okay.